What next for the families no longer able to get food parcels from the food bank run by Dave Butterbean Latelli? For more on that story and everything else worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to The Long Read From Stuff. This week's story is called The New Zealanders and the Genocide. It's by Stuff's national correspondent, Charlie Mitchell, and comes from Stuff's Our Truth to Mato Pono series. While New Zealand was struggling with its own race relations at home in the late 19th century, Charlie investigated recently surfaced evidence New Zealand sheep farmers were involved in crimes against indigenous people in South America. Now, here's Michael Wright reading Charlie's story. There's a small town near the bottom of the world where penguins outnumber people and sheep outnumber penguins, which has an unlikely New Zealand connection. Cameron, population around 230, sits on the edge of a bay in Tierra del Fuego, an archipelago of fractured islands dominated by glaciers and steep mountain slopes at the bottom of South America. Few permanently inhabited places lie deeper in the global south than Cameron. Based on its latitude, it's about 700 kilometres further south than Stewart Island, nearly touching the northernmost point of Antarctica, which unfurls towards South America like a grasping hand. Among the interesting things about Cameron is its name. It comes from New Zealand. In a former life, the town was part of a sprawling sheep farm managed by a man the locals called Don Alejandro Cameron. Aged just 24, he sailed around the Pacific to explore Tierra del Fuego, largely unmapped by the West, and of growing interest to an expanding empire hungry for land and resources. He would have immediately seen similarities to Otago, where he was born and raised near the foot of the Blue Mountains. The plains of Tierra del Fuego are chronically dry, with hardy, tussock-like grasses. The yawning flatlands stretch between snowy peaks and glaciers, mostly bereft of trees but carved with ice-cold streams and deep blue lakes. At the time, Don Aleandro was better known as Alexander Cameron, a shepherd born and raised in Tapanui, near the border of Otago and Southland. His father, John, was a Scottish migrant who moved between farms in Otago as a shepherd. His mother, Mary, was a New Zealander, born and raised in Tapanui. After graduating from Otago Boys High School in Dunedin, Cameron ran a farm in the Hakataramia Valley near Oamaru until 1892. Cameron might have ventured north for opportunity. Instead, he went far, far south. More than half a century later, Cameron died peacefully, aged 82. He spent the remainder of his life in South America, retiring to a farm near Buenos Aires, which he called the Māori Ranch, a nod to his country of birth. Today, the ranch is an arboretum, dedicated to preserving indigenous plant species. Cameron's legacy in official accounts is one of success and enterprise. Using his skill and connections as a New Zealander, he modernised sheep farming in a part of the world seen as a new frontier for agriculture. He formed lifelong connections, both culturally and economically, between New Zealand and South America. To this day, aspects of the southern Patagonian landscape owes its character to decisions made by Cameron and his family, several of whom joined him in Tierra del Fuego. The other, 
lesser known part of that legacy is much darker. Recently surfaced evidence implicates Cameron and other New Zealanders in crimes which have caused considerable trauma across generations. They've come to light in documents as well as an historical account of the era written in Spanish. Letters written by Cameron, obtained by Stuff, alongside contemporary accounts, suggest at least a handful of New Zealanders contributed to the genocide of the Sultanam, one of the indigenous peoples of Tierra del Fuego. Among them was Don Alejandro, labelled by some as a central figure in the campaign against the Sultanam people. I speak extensively of Cameron, since he was a character who reached very important positions and was identified as one of the instigators and participants in the genocide of the Sultanam people, said Jose Luis Alonso Machante, a historian who wrote Sultanam, Genocidio e Resistencia, a lengthy account of the Sultanam genocide. No doubt there were other New Zealand settlers at the same time in the region since the sheep farming business was mainly run by employees of British origin and their colonies. Among the most damning accounts of genocide surviving today come from reports published in New Zealand newspapers. They indicate other New Zealanders were involved in squads that hunted Sultanam, capturing them for relocation to a concentration camp and, in some cases, killing them. I'd argue strongly that it wasn't just Cameron and it wasn't just the Cameron family, although they're the most prominent, said Dr Scott Hamilton, a New Zealand historian and sociologist who's been researching the Sultanam genocide. I think there's a lot of evidence that there were really significant numbers of New Zealanders going to Tierra del Fuego for sheep farming and gold mining. A long time ago, Fernanda Olivares' great-grandfather was rounded up in Tierra del Fuego and forced to work in servitude. It was part of a systematic campaign to remove Sultanam from their land, either through capture or death. They agreed to erase us all, she said. I didn't know my great-grandfather, but I know his life was hard. He didn't understand Spanish. He grew up like some kind of slave. Over the span of a few decades, the Sultanam people on the main island of Tierra del Fuego reduced from around 4,000 to several hundred. Some were killed and many died, but others were distributed through Chile, working as servants or slaves in a country they didn't know, forced to learn a language they didn't understand. Much of the Sultanam culture was lost during the genocide, which happened so quickly little could be preserved. What did survive were photographs taken by anthropologists and missionaries. The most famous photos chronicle a months-long ceremony called the Hain, used to usher young Sultanam men into adulthood. Men would paint themselves with vivid spiral patterns, reflecting their dreams and events from their lives. They would wear tall, elaborate masks, disguising themselves as deities within a complex mythology. Austrian missionary Martin Gusind, who studied the Sultanam, photographed these ceremonies in the early 1920s, shortly before they would end forever. The striking patterns, spiralling like distant galaxies, something out of science fiction, have inspired artists and designers. Much of that knowledge has since been lost. Several generations later, the Sultanam community exists in tiny shards, scattered across Chile. 
Saltnam today officially number several hundred, according to the Corporación Saltnam Chile, a group that represents Saltnam ancestors. The number is likely higher, but a long-standing stigma and the intergenerational trauma caused by what was done to the Saltnam meant some were reluctant to claim their identity. Some people say, I know my grandmother, or my grandfather, or my great-grandfather was taken from Tierra del Fuego, but they don't like to talk about it because it's too painful for them, said Olivares, who's the group's treasurer. There's a lot of people that don't like to talk about it because it's hard. Today on Newsable, Dave Brown Butterbean Latelli is having to turn away 500 families. He was helping through his free food parcels. What is going on? Will anyone be able to ski or snowboard in the decades to come as snowfall drops due to climate change? And how many starlings is too many starlings? One besieged English town knows exactly where it wants the pooping flocks to go. You can guess where that is. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcast. After a long journey by horseback, Alexander Cameron arrived at the Calita Josefina, a newly established sheep farm in Tierra del Fuego, and spotted a problem. The 25-year-old had been in South America for less than a year, but had already impressed the local farming companies. In 1894, Cameron approached the Sociedad Explotadora de Tierra del Fuego, or SETF, a group comprising European and Chilean business interests, for a job. Its administrator, a Russian-born Chilean businessman named Mauricio Braun, invited Cameron to see the company's centerpiece farm. The Chilean government had granted the company leasehold interests in around 400,000 hectares of bare land in Tierra del Fuego at virtually no cost, as part of an effort to expand economic opportunities in the southern lands. The Calita Josefina was well underway, a homestead had been built, and plans showed a large settlement, including around 30,000 sheep had been marked out. Today, the Calita Josefina is a luxury lodge, catering for wealthy fishermen and tourists who want to experience the crystal-clean glacial waters of Tierra del Fuego. In Cameron's day, it was a rugged farm at the end of the earth, run largely by amateurs unfamiliar with the hazards of farming in such harsh country. Shearers would work in the outdoors, even during the depths of winter. Cameron established shearing sheds, some of which still remain. They were modelled explicitly on the type used in Australasia. The company created other farms to join the Josefina. Within two decades, the society's farms on Tierra del Fuego boasted nearly two million heads of sheep. The Josefina grew so large it was split into pieces. One was named Estancia Camarón, in honour of the Josefina's trailblazing manager. Throughout the late 1890s, more and more New Zealanders arrived at the Calita Josefina and to other farms nearby chasing opportunities along a path formed by Cameron. Among them were members of Cameron's own family. Records show three of Cameron's brothers, plus his half-brother and half-sister, lived or worked in Patagonia. One served as Cameron's right-hand man, Alexander wrote in one letter. Several worked as managers or under-managers at other farms. 
Later, Cameron's Otago-born brother-in-law would become administrator of a rival sheep empire in Patagonia. There's also evidence New Zealanders helped professionalise gold mining on the island, introducing the likes of dredging machines. There was a prophecy in Saltnam mythology. Strange men from afar would destroy their people. Since the 16th century, the Saltnam had sporadic contact with outsiders, often with dire results. In 1880, a decade before the sheep farmers arrived, gold miners had led excursions into the island, killing and capturing numerous Saltnam. Some Saltnam were forced onto ships and exhibited in human zoos in Europe. Most did not return to their island. Ultimately, the gold miners retreated, just as the sheep barons started setting up their paddocks. Unfamiliar with the concept of private property and wary of the new arrivals pushing into their land, the Sultanam would break fences and hunt sheep. As a consequence, the SCTF struggled to find investors who knew the conflict posed a threat to the financial stability of the farm. As frustrations grew, a solution was sought. The order came to Alexander Cameron from his boss. Any Sultanam seen to be interfering with the farm's fences would be captured. The company had made an agreement with the Silesians, a Catholic missionary group which had set up a retreat on Dawson Island in Magellan Strait. The sheep farmers would capture Saltnam and relocate them to the island, where they would be taught to conform to Western ways of living. It was, in effect, a concentration camp. The company paid gangs with the sole purpose of tracking and capturing Saltnam. According to several sources, Cameron was tasked with running the effort. Describing one successful shearing season, he wrote, This result was achieved by rigorous patrolling at night, in which I personally was constantly taking part. Several of our men at different times were killed by the Indians. He continued, I myself had two narrow escapes. Once an arrow struck in the lapel of a heavy coat I was wearing, and on another occasion blood was drawn from my throat, just under the chin. Over the course of several years, the gangs captured many hundreds of Saltnam, who were shipped to Dawson Island. Some Saltnam went to the island voluntarily to avoid being captured. Several contemporary sources said men were paid a bounty for each male Saltnam killed, with a bow serving as adequate proof of death. These stories continued long after the genocide was over, but they're difficult to verify with hard evidence. The company itself insisted its role was to capture Saltnam, and there was no formal bounty program. In any case, large numbers of Saltnam died. Decades later, Gusent, the Austrian missionary, reported finding at least half a dozen Saltnam skulls near the Kalita Josefina, which he saw as further evidence of a violent campaign against them. The pen hesitates to describe the systematic extermination he wrote in 1924. Due to the isolation of the farms, it took several years for news of the campaigns against Saltnam to trickle out. Some of the most vivid accounts were published in New Zealand newspapers by New Zealanders who proudly said they took part. In 1897, the press published an account by three New Zealand shearers of their work in Tierra del Fuego. One of the men, named as C.H. Lascelles, described being hosted by Alexander Cameron and hearing about how the Indians were being dealt with. 
The settlers have, therefore, rather taken matters into their own hands and have got leave from the Chilean government to catch all the Indians they can and ship them across to Dawson Island, LaSalle said. When the three men arrived at Calita Josefina, they saw a group of farmers return with 63 Salknam. LaSalle's described the Salknam as treacherous and a very low class of savages. An even more chilling description came the following year in two stories published by the Marlborough Express. They were written by a man only identified as G.H.C., a Marlborough sheep farmer who had moved to Tierra del Fuego. He recounted his time with the Indian hunters, meaning Cameron and his employees. The experience, he wrote, was like a dream. He'd come across a farmer named Mr. S.H., likely Sam Hislop, a Scottish farmer who worked at Calita Josefina, later notorious for his brutality, who had made a pair of horse hobbles from the skin of a Salknam he'd killed. One day, the New Zealand man joined his first hunt. I said I was quite willing to go, but that hitherto I'd had very little practice in killing Indians, he wrote. Nevertheless, I was willing to see how it was done, so we started. They wanted me to have a revolver, but I said it was not necessary, as I could kill as many Indians as I required with the rifle. The author observed how the landscape resembled Waihopai and Marlborough. Salknam, he said, were very much like our Maoris, in colour and appearance. The hunters captured 45 Salknam, who were taken to a nearby station and watched over by armed guards during the day, and shackled to leg irons at night. From there they would be taken to Dawson Island. The man's account cannot be independently verified. It appears to have been printed verbatim by the newspaper, without fact-checking, meaning it may have been exaggerated. But it includes details and descriptions of real people only knowable to someone familiar with the area. It aligned with accounts which had filtered out to cities within Patagonia, including Puntas Arenas. Several local newspapers reported on the raids and the expanding concentration camp on Dawson Island. One story published in El Chileno, a popular newspaper, was written by a correspondent who described a barbaric, frightening and useless persecution undertaken against Salknam, which goes beyond all the limits of savagery. I've heard about events that are cold and ignite indignation in the soul atrocities that today are not seen in the wildest countries in the world, the person wrote. A journalist from another newspaper was visiting Dawson Island and saw a group of Salknam being dropped off for the Silesians. They were all women and children. He asked where the men were and was told not to worry about it. He inferred the men were already dead. The accounts led local authorities to investigate Several men, among them Alexander Cameron, were arrested and released on bail. The investigation was compromised from the beginning. No Salknam gave evidence, supposedly because the court couldn't find an interpreter. Most accounts were from shearers, potentially complicit in the crimes being investigated. Nevertheless, the resulting court documents, spanning more than 800 pages, heavily implicate Cameron. José Luis Alonso Machante, the historian who's written about the genocide, points out that Cameron's name appears more than 150 times. Several witnesses identified him as central to the efforts to capture Salknam. The most damning allegation about Cameron came from a witness who claimed to have met several men who had formed part of Cameron's gangs. 
they said they'd been instructed to kill Saltnau. They received this order from the administrator, Don Alejandro Cameron, who paid them their remuneration and gave them provisions, the transcript reads. They also said that they had orders to kill the males and bring the females and the boys. Several witnesses, however, staunchly denied that bounties were paid for dead Saltnau, and efforts were made to avoid bloodshed. The bulk of the inquiry centred on a particular raid led by Cameron. A group of Saltnam had damaged a fence one night. Cameron and four men followed in pursuit. They caught up and fired shots. At least one Saltnam was killed and several more were wounded. Most of the Saltnam surrendered and were held in a farm shed for around 20 days. The most harrowing testimony concerned what happened next. The captured Saltnam weren't taken to Dawson Island, as was usually the case, but to Punta Serenas, where they were paraded through the streets and distributed to the city's residents. A panel of local political figures decided how the Saltnam would be distributed to respectable residents. The men worked as sailors, servants and forestry workers, whilst the children were adopted by Chilean families. One witness, the then vice council of Uruguay, told the court he saw Saltnam children being taken from their mothers in a manner that was horrifying. He saw two Saltnam women screaming and crying because their children had been taken. Some adult Saltnam who couldn't work as servants were instead exiled outside the town, according to an account published in the El Chileno newspaper. Around 15 of them died, while the rest lived in extreme poverty, the newspaper reported. Despite the evidence against him, Cameron wasn't convicted of a crime, nor was anyone else. In 1904, nearly a decade after the inquiry began, the court decided it was unclear if Saltnam had the same rights as other people. By 1898, the campaign against the Saltnam had already started winding down. Our troubles with the Indians are pretty nearly finished, Cameron wrote to an associate. Not the start the Wars wanted for the 2024 season, not the start we wanted as fans. Where did things go wrong? There was so much expectation around that opening game. There were 24,000 in there at Mount Smart to watch the game. We were all hoping that all the hype would be converted into a win, but it wasn't to be. Um, things didn't really go overly wrong, but I think a bit of credit has to go to their opponents, the Sharks. They really did defend superbly well, and they nullified every single attack that the Warriors could throw at them and it got under the warrior's skin a little bit. For news and sport that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. Newsable Sport is proudly brought to you by Sky, your sport unrivaled. The decline of the Sultanam inversely mirrored Cameron's success. In 1906, he was promoted to lead the entire company, overseeing all farming operations. On Dawson Island, Outbreaks of European diseases such as tuberculosis and measles were causing mass death. By the time Cameron retired in 1915, the Saltnam population had fallen to about 300. By 1950, the year of his death, fewer than 25 Saltnam remained. It's unclear how many Saltnam were killed by armed sheep farmers and how many died in the concentration camp. 
The Silesians and the sheep farmers each later blame the other for driving the genocide. What is clear is that both, in combination, led to a rapid decline in the Southdown population, from which it couldn't recover. Central to that effort, the historical record shows, was Alexander Cameron. Conflicting accounts mean the scope of New Zealand involvement in the genocide remains debatable. Alexander Cameron, at best, followed his boss's orders, participating in the capture and forced relocation of many dozens of people, some of whom died as a consequence. At worst, he was among those who led a violent yet successful campaign to permanently replace Sultanah men, women and children with sheep. The involvement of New Zealanders in such deeds can be difficult to accept. Dr Scott Hamilton has been researching the genocide and the role of New Zealanders. Like a lot of people, I got fascinated with the Fuegian peoples because of their visual art, he said. With an extraordinary economy, they created images that looked like they come from another planet, or indeed another universe. It was only later that New Zealand's links to Tierra del Fuego began to leap out from Papers Past, the historical newspaper archive. At the time, New Zealand was still firmly within the broader British Empire, meaning some of its citizens were involved in acts of brutal colonisation in far-flung parts of the world. Many such deeds aren't well remembered today, if they are at all. We like to think of ourselves as exceptionalists, Hamilton said. We tend to look at Australia, South Africa, French Polynesia and the Americas as bad colonial experiences and tell ourselves we didn't do as badly as that. The notion that we have a connection to those things is very disturbing. It's something we'd like to keep at arm's length. There's no evidence the New Zealand government supported, condoned or even knew about the events in Tierra del Fuego. It makes the matter of rectification unclear. There was no clear-cut case for an apology by the Crown, given the crimes were committed by private individuals. One way New Zealanders could help is by aiding efforts by genealogists to trace the children stolen by Cameron's raids. It was also possible museums or family collections contained items brought back from Tierra del Fuego which could be returned, Hamilton said. Not long after the genocide, the Sultanam were legally erased from existence too. Many decades ago, the Chilean government placed Salknam on a list of extinct indigenous peoples. It formalised what many Chileans had assumed, that the Salknam were from another time, wiped out long ago. It wasn't true. Through the internet, a small but vocal community of Salknam have come together to fight for recognition, which previous generations were unable to do. They've passed the first hurdle. A bill to officially recognise Salknam as an existing people was accepted in Chile's House of Representatives, meaning it's a few steps away from becoming law. Being considered alive would be like a starting point for healing inside ourselves, said Fernanda Olivares, treasurer of the Corporación Salknam Chile. She has no particular animosity towards New Zealand or even to Alexander Cameron. It happened a long time ago, and what's done is done. For money, for land, for material stuff, people can kill and torture, she said. It's frustrating. I don't know how to express all that. Olivares spoke to stuff alongside her mother, Hemani Molina, president of the society. 
Molina has spent years fighting for Salknam legal recognition. It's taken a personal toll. Every single indigenous person you might know or hear about around the world, we don't have a nice story, Molina said in Spanish as her daughter translated. We all suffer. We are victims of progress. It has happened all the time. In January, the pair visited the main island of Tierra del Fuego for the first time. They were able to stand on the land their ancestors had occupied, where Molina's grandfather had been born and raised, before he was kidnapped by a gang, likely led by a New Zealander, which changed the course of their lives for many generations. She doesn't have the opportunity to feel right now, Olivares said about her mother. Knowing is really hard. It's painful. The more you read, the more it hurts. Once we achieve this legal recognition, that will probably be the last time she lets herself feel. That was the New Zealanders and the genocide on the long read from Stuff. Written by Charlie Mitchell and read and produced by Michael Wright. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and many more like it on the Long Read podcast. Thanks for listening. Ka kite anō. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz/support.